0: a weird and wild week of football. I can't imagine a week, I can't remember a week where I've seen so many freak injuries, games not go the way they're supposed to. If you're like me, it was a brutal week in fantasy football. Alvin Kamara wasn't good. Christian McCaffrey wasn't good. George Kittle wasn't good. And Sports Pick'em, Pick'em here on the Sports Pen, just has not been a good week for me either, really for anybody here on our friends of the show list. I tell you what, that's why we love it. We love the craziness, and I love being able to talk with you about it every Monday. And then, of course, we get the rest of the week to fill with anything else. But football reigns supreme on Mondays here on the Sports Pen. Tanner Hoops with you. Glad that you're along with me on this Monday afternoon, day after the Sunday of Week 2 of the NFL season. One more game tonight, in the marquee matchup featuring the Browns and the New York Jets here on ESPN-TV this evening. I tell you what, what we're going to do today, I'm going to give you my thoughts on each matchup from yesterday, give you some quick hits, I've got a couple stats of the day, we'll play over, under, college football style coming up. I've got a trade proposal that very well could happen. Nobody's talking about it, at least I haven't heard anyone talk about it. I hope that nobody on the national stage has taken it before I got to get to it today. I tell you what, bear with me once you hear it, because you're going to hear it and you're going to think, no way, no way this could ever happen. But I tell you what. It very well could. It very well could. It's going to be out there, so bear with me while I make my case on it. That trade proposal is coming up over the course of the next hour. We've got a little baseball talk to get to, plus I did another fan inbox. I'm going to answer some of your questions coming up over the course of the show. But let's get to NFL in a wild week one that really got going on Sunday, we had the Thursday night game. Yesterday, we had wild ones all throughout the board and plenty of upsets. Plenty of key performances and some not-so-key performances to go with it. You know we had a key performance, though? Lamar Jackson, as Baltimore took down Arizona 23-17. We got to see Lamar Jackson go up against Kyler Murray, and that was fun. I tell you what, I'm sold on Lamar Jackson. I really am, ladies and gentlemen. I owe him a huge apology because I was one of those people making running back jokes. I thought, man, he doesn't have the arm accuracy, he doesn't even have the arm strength to be able to survive in the NFL as a quarterback. And yet here he is. I tell you what, yesterday, this is what he did. Two hundred and seventy-two yards, two touchdowns passing. He rushed for a career high one hundred twenty yards. That means he threw for two times as many yards as he ran for. By the way, no other quarterback in NFL history has ever passed for two hundred and fifty yards and ran for another 120 in a single game. Lamar Jackson became the first to do it yesterday, and he did it in just his 10th career NFL game. Think about that. No one else before Lamar Jackson yesterday has ran for 120 yards and passed for 250 in a single game. Lamar Jackson did it yesterday. Think of all the mobile quarterbacks. Think of some of the greats, some guys that had even an average arm. Just like a hint of being a good passing quarterback with elite running ability. Think about guys like Michael Vick. He never did it. Donovan McNabb, Dante Culpepper. You want to go way back? How about Randall Cunningham? Lamar Jackson became the first one of anybody to ever get this done. Now granted, his first couple of games this year were against the Dolphins and the Cardinals, two of the worst defenses in the NFL. But at some point... You just got to eat your crow and stop looking for ways to doubt him. That's what I'm doing here today on the show. Lamar Jackson, I apologize. I'm eating my crow today because you are now one of my favorite players in football. You are so much fun to watch. You and Pat Mahomes, you two just please stay healthy throughout the course of the year. Lamar Jackson is doing stuff that we really have never seen. And I can say that 10 games into his career. Because really, what has he done to give us doubt? Took over a team that was flopping last year. Ends up winning the division, getting to the playoffs. They go 6-1 and one under him, and he's won his first two games of this season doing something no other quarterback's ever done. Lamar Jackson is legit, and I'm here for it. Lamar Jackson and the Ravens, 2-0, and and they got to be the favorites in the AFC North now, don't they? With the news about Ben Roethlisberger, that's got to be Baltimore's division. San Francisco at Cincinnati, 41-17 San Fran. I don't know if he's ever technically been here, But Jimmy Garoppolo is back. 17 of 25, 297 yards, and three touchdowns. Now, granted, that came against the Cincinnati defense. Be a lot more impressive if it was somebody else. But on the other side of things, how about Andy Dalton? We gave him and Zach Taylor a lot of credit last week, as we should have. Going into this week, Andy Dalton led the NFL in passing yards. And he wasn't too bad yesterday either. 26 of 42, 311 yards, and two touchdowns. He's passed for about 750 yards in two games now. 17 points, that's, that's, that can win you a game. That can win you a game or two. But not when you have Cincinnati's defense. I tell you what, we want to throw a lot of blame on Andy Dalton. That's popular to do. We want to do that to a quarterback. But Andy Dalton is not the reason that the Bengals are 1-1 one one to start 2019. The defense is. Andy Dalton, I don't know if he was ever here before, but is he back? The jury's still out on that one. I tell you what, though, the Detroit Lions, with their best win that I've seen them get in a long time, and I'll tell you why, they beat the Chargers 13-10 yesterday, I tell you what, that Detroit defense, this is exactly what they brought Matt Patricia in for, because he was the architect of some really good Patriot defenses, you know, doesn't hurt to be under Belichick's coaching tree, under his wing, but he finally brought that to Detroit, at least for one game, he did it yesterday, as the Lions took down the Chargers 13-10. to I tell you what, there's some good weapons on that Chargers team. Keenan Allen, Austin Eckler. I know they don't have Melvin Gordon, but those guys aren't scrubs. Phillip Rivers, one of the best quarterbacks to ever play the game. Two weeks in a row now, we've seen Drew Brees, and now Philip Rivers get picked off in the end zone. Darius, big play, Slay. That Lions defense came up big when they needed to. I tell you what's even more impressive to me, offensively. Everyone wants to throw Daryl Bevel under the bus. He has been the butt of a lot of jokes since Super Bowl 49 when he was with Seattle. I tell you what, got to give credit where credit's due. Because yesterday, they finally had a game plan around Stafford. It wasn't just, Matt, we're not going to build around you. We're not going to support you. Just go out there and make a play and keep us alive. Give us a chance to win this game. Yesterday, we saw Bevel and his system work to about its max. Stafford had a few mistakes. He overcame them. He was intercepted twice, but he still went 22-33, of 33, excuse me, 22-30, of 30, 245 yards, and passed for two touchdowns. Stafford had a better day because he's not chucking it downfield and hoping something good happens. Rather, Bevel puts in a series of high percentage passes, and Stafford's able to execute. What's more, Kerryon Johnson maybe had his best game in the Lions uniform, and he did so largely because of his receiving ability. Two catches for 47 yards included one touchdown. And then he ran 12 times for 41 yards. He was the support that Stafford has been looking for. The Lions have got to feel really good about that win. Really, as a whole, the Lions got to feel good about this season so far. Two games in, they're undefeated. They have played seven quarters of really good football. Forget the fourth quarter against Arizona, that debacle. They have played seven quarters of really good football. Undefeated second place in the division. I tell you what, we weren't expecting a lot out of the Lions this year. But you've got to give them credit where credit's due. They had an awesome game yesterday. How about Green Bay winning over Minnesota 21-16? to Kirk Cousins, bad. Aaron Rodgers, good. I tell you what, Green Bay getting off to the hot start, exactly what they needed. Yet, I don't know that the Packers should be that optimistic coming away from this one. They had a 21-point first quarter. Awesome. Really good job. But there were some glaring mistakes out there. The two dropped interceptions, Jair Alexander, Now we're waiting for him to take that next step as a top-tier corner. That's something he's got to have. That Green Bay defense looked pretty good yesterday, but I'm not ready to buy in totally on them yet. I'm not ready to say they're a top-five defense yet because largely that was Kirk Cousins losing the game more than it was Green Bay's defense securing the game with an interception late in the fourth quarter. I tell you what, what are the other glaring mistakes in the Packer game yesterday? Matt LaFleur when Green Bay had the ball inside the 30, I think it was down to the 28 just before half, and Matt LaFleur chooses to go for it up 21-7 to rather than taking the points, kicking a 45 or so yard field goal and going into half, presumably up 17, provided the Vikings don't go down and score. I tell you what, this was a Viking offense that wasn't doing anything. They had one big play at that point in the game. That was a long touchdown run by Dalvin Cook. That's where you take the points, you go up by three scores before half, And you let that Viking offense make a play. Make Kirk Cousins be the one who comes back and beats you. Make him rally for three scores and one half on your home field. That was a huge mistake by Matt LaFleur not taking the points right there. Because Minnesota comes back down, they score, got within the touchdown, but then a penalty wiped that touchdown away. But you think about how that could have affected the game late. LaFleur takes those points. They're up 24-16 late when the Vikings have it first and goal, five minutes left. And I tell you what, then the Vikings need to score, and they need the two-point conversion. You put so much more pressure on them by doing that. That is a rookie coach's mistake by LaFleur. It's something he'll learn from, and he'll move on. I tell you what, Kirk Cousins and the Vikings got, I don't want to say the wrong word here, but you, you know what I mean, $84 million for that. Any half-decent high school quarterback knows you don't make that throw that Kevin King intercepted. Tell you what, credit the Packers. Credit them where credit's due. But they have got a lot of question marks, in that division lead, far from safe right now. I'm not totally convinced yet. I think a lot of other quarterbacks probably win that game for Minnesota. Again, can't take it away from Green Bay, but they have got to do better than what they did in the final three quarters of yesterday for me to really buy into them. How about the Houston Texans at home with the Jacksonville Jaguars? 13-12, Houston the winners in that one. I heart Garner Minshew. I just love the guy. Starts when, it get, uh, when he gets off the team plane, and he's wearing the open robe, chest hair spilling out, he's got the dirty-looking goatee, the glasses, and then Mike Garofalo's report that he's in the locker room stretching before the game wearing nothing but a jockstrap. This is America's quarterback. Garner Minshew is the most fascinating rookie in this year's draft class. I love the guy, and that final minute of the game where he's leading the team downfield for a potential game-time scoring drive was just Phenomenal. That was surgical. That was so much fun. Garner Minshew had the hot hand. Now, this is what I don't like because they got the touchdown with under a minute to go. Then Doug Marone, head coach who was fighting with his star player earlier in the game, had to be separated on the sideline from cornerback Jalen Ramsey, decides to go for two. Now, let me tell you this I don't hate the call to go for two. I don't. You're on the road with your backup quarterback against a team that's better than you. You got the chance to beat them inside a minute to go. Sure. I have no problem with that. Go for two in the win. I did have a problem with choosing to take the football out of Garner Minshew's hands. I know Leonard Fournette is a great option, but Garner Minshew had the hot hand. Look what he did to get you into the end zone that drive. You can't take the ball out of his hand in that situation. You can't do that. He has to be the one to make a play. You sink or swim. You live or die by him on that two-point try. I don't know how much longer Doug Marone has left in Jacksonville. How about the New England Patriots visiting Miami? They win 43 to nothing. Hey, maybe a little improvement for the Dolphin defense. This time, the game wasn't over till the third quarter, rather than the game being over at kickoff like it was in week one. It was only a 13-point game at one point in the third quarter. I tell you what, Miami continues to be a debacle and just publicly tank. I tell you what, they're still a proud franchise. They haven't had a lot of good years lately. It's been a few decades since they've been good. Larry Zonka, Dan Marino, Don Shula, they're not walking back through that door yet they're still the only team in NFL history that has a perfect regular season and a perfect postseason, a 19-0 year. Now they're on pace to do really the polar opposite this season. Meanwhile, Antonio Brown looks like he's going to fit in just fine with New England. He's pretty happy where he is. A couple of touchdown passes yesterday from Tom Brady. I tell you what, New England's struggles had been well documented. Their struggles at Miami going into that game yesterday, losing five of the last six, including what happened last year. But quickly, the Miami miracle was forgotten and replaced by the Miami massacre that happened yesterday. I tell you what, the Patriots look like they have the best defense in football. I don't see any reason to think why they wouldn't so far. They've outscored opponents 76-3 to through the first two games. It's just insane. In Miami, though, their point differential is negative 92. They are being outscored 102-10. to The Dolphins are on pace to go 0-16, I tell you what. Uh, Let's keep rolling through a few of these here because I'm starting to push up against the break. You had Seattle taking down Pittsburgh 28-26. Ben Roethlisberger, season-ending injury. He he left that game yesterday, announced today that he is going to get somewhat of a Tommy John-style surgery, and he will be out for the remainder of this season. So is Pittsburgh going to go with Mason Rudolph? I'm not totally convinced. That's where my trade proposal comes in. I'm going to have to save that for a little bit later on in the show though because i got a guest who's coming up here and i got to ramp this up here pretty quickly. Seattle gets a win over Pittsburgh though, 28-26. The Colts, 1917, getting by Tennessee and the Titans are just made to be a 500 team. All's right in the world if the Titans are 500. That's how you know all's right in the world. Dallas Cowboys 31-21, they beat Washington. Dak Prescott, Kellen Moore, match made in heaven. Dak looks like a top quarterback now. Not in that top four with Brady, Breeze, Mahomes, and Rodgers, but top ten? He's starting to make us think. In the right system with Kellen Moore? Oh, absolutely. He's starting to look that way now. Can't take anything away from what Dak has done here in the first two weeks of the season. How about Kansas City and Oakland, 28-10? Chiefs, they were shut out through the first quarter. Down 10-0. Pat Mahomes didn't have it. Then second quarter came around, and he did. Four touchdown passes and he just lit it up. They did this all with Tariq Hill, by the way. Kansas City, Pat Mahomes, I love it. Pat Mahomes is quickly becoming my new favorite NFL player. By the way, week three, this Sunday, we get Pat Mahomes against Lamar Jackson and Baltimore. I can't wait. I can't wait. That is the game I'm most excited for. Chicago winners over Denver, 16-14. Denver, they decide to go for two, and they convert it. But they left 30-something seconds on the clock, leading 14-13. 14-13. to 13. Matt Nagy seemed like he's lost his coaching touch because he's been so obsessed with a kicker, trying to find a consistent kicker. Eddie Pinero hit twice from 52 yards yesterday, including the game-winner's time expired in the fourth quarter, and that gave Chicago the win. 16-14, the Bears' kicking game is back. L.A. Rams 27-9 over the Saints. Now, the biggest loss in that game being Drew Brees. He hit his hand on what looked to be Aaron Donald's face mask on his helmet. Significant hand injury. He will be out six weeks, placed on the IR, and he will be eligible to come back about week nine. Hey, they should stop playing the Rams. I was expecting more in New Orleans, and now they find themselves in a lot of trouble. Teddy Bridgewater, if he can go at least 500 here over the course of the next six games or so, New Orleans might be all right. And then how about the Carnage Bowl? Atlanta, Philadelphia, Sunday Night Football. Julio Jones saves the day, and Philadelphia despite losing so many key pieces offensively due to injury, comes up half a yard short in their comeback attempt. Atlanta 24-20 over Philadelphia. It was just a weird day in the NFL yesterday, but a fun day. And that's why I love being able to break it down with you here in the sports pen. I tell you what, I have got a guess that's going to be coming up. I've still got a lot more to get to on football, but we're going to switch to some baseball here for the next segment. We'll come back and we'll talk a little hardball next on ESPN-UP.
1: Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app.
0: Welcome back to The Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Tanner Hoops with you. Glad you're along. Well, Saturday night, the American Association crowned their newest champion. The St. Paul Saints won it in three straight games over the Sioux City Explorers, the franchise's first AA championship ever. And we're joined by -by play-by-play man Sean Aronson. He had the call Saturday night. Tonight. Sean, thanks for being with us. Congrats to you and the Saints. Has it set in yet?
2: Uh, uh, I think it. Uh, I think it's set in a little bit. Tanner, thanks for thanks for having me. You know, it was an incredible, incredible playoffs. It was an incredible final month of the season, and uh, culminated into Saturday, which uh, was a night that I don't think any of us around here will soon forget.
0: I tell you what, Sean, getting to call that final out, being on the call for the championship as a whole—where does that compare to some other moments throughout your broadcast career?
2: You know, I kept uh, telling people, people would always ask me, you know, what's your uh, most memorable moment as a broadcaster? And I kept telling people I hope it was uh, it was to come, you know, because I hadn't called the championship moment. Uh, it is probably top two now. Uh, I was fortunate enough to call Kevin Millar's home run with the Saints a couple of years ago when he came back to play uh, in one game for the Saints. Um, but this one topped that because I've been waiting 19 years as a broadcaster to, to get that moment. And, and I did. And it was Unbelievable. Of course, look, like, I didn't. I didn't throw a pitch. I didn't uh, swing a bat. Uh, I didn't do anything on the field. So, thanks goes to to all the guys and, and manager George Samus and, and what he did.
0: Well, Sean, the Saints have been waiting for a team like this for a long time. They've made it to four American Association Championship Series, but this one is the team that breaks the streak. What is it about this team that's different from others in the past?
2: Uh, this team believed it could win. I, I won't lie to you and say that this was the the most talented team that I've been around in the 13 years I've been as a broadcaster, because um, it most certainly was not. But these guys had a will that none of the other teams had. They, they honestly believed that it didn't matter how far they fell behind. And, and trust me, they fell behind plenty in the playoffs. They weren't playing from ahead in most games. It didn't matter how far, far they fell behind. They believed they would come back, and uh, they did. They, they went out there believing they were going to win every ball ballgame, uh, and they darn near did they went 17-3 and down the stretch in the regular season to win the division um, lost the first two games in the playoffs and then rattled off six in a row so you know what is that 23-5 over the last uh, basically month of the year it's incredible
0: yeah down two nothing facing an elimination game in the opening round of the playoffs had to come back that night infield single i think walked it off and then from there it was just cruise control for your guys but tell me about that comeback take us through the process
2: well, you know, it's interesting. Game three, so we lost the first two games on the road. Game three, uh, we were actually, we had a perfect game against us through six innings and we were down four nothing. Um, think about that. You're nine outs away from, from being eliminated, being swept. Uh, you don't have a hit. You don't have a base runner. Uh, and then it just slowly started in, uh, you know, in the seventh inning and we were able to, to tie the ball game up. Uh, that night we went on to win six to four. Uh, it was the next night in game four that we won on the walk off into a single one to nothing. Uh, and then in Game Five, we were we were down five to nothing, uh, and and came back to tie that ball game up at five in the sixth inning, and then in the eighth inning, Fargo hit the two run home run to make it seven to five, and you think, well, all this magic is finally you know going to go by the wayside, and then we would score four runs in the bottom of the eighth inning, and it was it was just it really was it was unbelievable to watch these guys come back each and every night.
0: Yeah, how about the Sioux City series? You sweep the American Association Championship from Sioux City in three straight games. Came back in game three. Chesney Young doesn't hit a lot of home runs, but the Grand Slam that puts you ahead for good.
2: Yeah, no doubt. he uh, It's funny, because he had only hit six home runs in his career, um, and then he had six home runs for us this year, with one of them being a Grand Slam. I mean, his first professional Grand Slam. And then in the playoffs, he comes through with a, with a Grand Slam in game number three, and, and the ironic thing is the last time the Saints won a championship back in 2004, they got a walk-off grand slam in game number five that won them the championship. So uh, now this wasn't of the walk-off variety, and it wasn't in game five, but they are, uh, they are paralleled are the Saints' last two championships uh, by grand slams, and, and you couldn't draw it up uh, any better than that.
0: Well, Sean, for our listeners who may not know, can you explain the American Association a little bit? It's an independent league. It's pro-level, but it's not minor league.
2: No, correct, yeah. So it's. Uh, I like to call it a first-chance, second-chance league, first chance for guys that are coming out of college that were not drafted, uh, and a second-chance league for guys that were in affiliated ball. Most of our guys were in affiliated ball somewhere, and they got released. And they're looking to continue their career in hopes of scout seeing them and having another organization sign them. As a matter of fact, we had arguably the MVP of this league for the first half and Max Murphy, uh, who's a former Minnesota Twins farmhand, played for us for the last couple of years, and he had his contract purchased by the Arizona Diamondbacks, uh, and again, ironically, he won a championship with A Visalia the, uh, the same night that we won our championship. So, uh, while he didn't win a title with us, he, he went on to an organization this year and, and won a title, Haya Visalia. So, uh, look, uh, these uh, people think independent ball and they think, uh, you know, weekend beer league softball, you know, that, that's what they think, and it's not. These guys, uh, you know, in Game 3 against Sioux City, we faced a former major leaguer uh, in Taylor Jordan, uh, and, and some people may remember that name. He gave up Albert Pujols' five hundred home run. So, uh, look, this is, this is not a uh, a league where there's no talent. There is, this is a league where there is a ton of talent, uh, and, and it shows on a, on a nightly basis.
0: And you've got a beautiful facility up there in St. Paul, CHS Field. Tell me about the stadium yep. atmosphere there on Saturday
2: night. Yeah, it was unbelievable. We had 72 hours to sell tickets. And, you know, everybody always says that Saints fans only come to games because of the entertainment and uh, it's a good time. And, and it is. It's all of that. But on Saturday night, in 72 hours to sell tickets, and this is a ball club that usually sells, uh, you know, 8,000 per night. We, we, we're the highest-drawing team uh, in all of independent baseball and one of the top-drawing teams in all of minor league baseball. And uh, we drew 5,300 in selling tickets to diehard fans that wanted to come out, that were hoping to watch a championship be crowned, and in 72 hours we sold over 5,000 tickets to the game. And and that says all you need to know about this community and the way they come out and support the team.
0: Well, Sean, obviously the home run call has got to be one of the highlights of your career. Any other moment from this season, maybe the one that got bumped down on your list, that had been your favorite moment of the season up to that point?
2: Well... I mean, I had the opportunity in 19 years in this business, I had never called a no-hitter before, Uh, and in early June, uh, our ace, Eddie Medina, threw the franchise's second no-hitter, and I had the opportunity to call that. It was on the road in Cleburne, Texas, and I thought that was going to be the most memorable moment of this season for me, Uh, and it turned out to be the second most memorable moment, but I was able to to check off two boxes on uh, on the broadcasting resume, if you will, Uh, that I had never done before, one being a no-hitter and the other being a championship. Now I'm not really sure what I have left on that box to check, so uh, we'll have to wait
0: and see. Well, hopefully get a few more moments with some memorable players, maybe get a move on, because I'm looking here at the list of American Association alum in Major League Baseball right now, Luke Hachiever, Brandon Kinsler, James Paxton, Max Scherzer. You mentioned that you got to call Kevin Millar's home run when he returned (laughs) to St. Paul last year. Anybody else that we might recognize that you've had the pleasure of calling?
2: Uh, that I've had the pleasure of calling. Um, I'm trying to think. a uh, Caleb Thielbar, who uh, mm-hmm. was with the Twins and then came. Uh, and after he left us, and uh, you know, he went on. I think he was at AAA in Detroit this year um, and had a ridiculous ERA. He, he deserved a, the opportunity to get called up. Um, I'm trying to think, Tanner Sheppers, who uh, went on to pitch in the big leagues for the Texas Rangers uh, for a, a few years. There, he uh, he had some trouble in terms of when he got drafted in terms of signing. So he came and played for us uh, for a couple of months and, and then uh, basically became a, a, I think a free agent or got put back in the draft class and uh, the next year and, and, and got drafted. But, um, but yeah, look, I, I've been, I've been fortunate here in my 13 years to, to see some incredible players uh, come through the, uh, the Saints organization. And uh, obviously this, this year, this team is probably going to be my favorite for what it did uh, for me in my career.
0: Talk with Sean Aronson, play-by-play man of the St. Saint Paul Saints, the Saints winning the American Association title Saturday night against Sioux City. I tell you what, Sean, how is the city celebrating? I know you had a little bit of a parade today.
2: <laughs> we did. It was a joke, too. We posted something on Twitter last night saying we were going to hold a one-block, one-minute parade, and it was a total joke, and people loved it. They ate it up because it's very Saints-like, and so we had to carve something together uh late last night, and so we got a three-piece band uh out here to play when the Saints go marching in. Uh we we got some of what we call our usher tainers which are actors and actresses that create characters and interact with our fans. They were a part of the parade and then about a half dozen players cuz most of our players have gone home now. Uh they left either Sunday or early today, but we got about a half dozen players uh to come out to the parade and our manager and the championship trophy. And we didn't have floats or anything. We we literally had um uh, like a, go- a couple of golf carts and what they call a gator, which is what the grounds crew uses to put uh, sod and, and, and dirt and stuff in. Uh, and we just we rode that down for the one block. The funny thing was we didn't expect many people to show, and it was lined up from wall to wall on both sides of the street. And originally we were just going to do the parade on the sidewalk, but we, walked, we got out there and realized we couldn't, and a few cops showed up just on their own. And they were kind enough to block off the street for us, but we didn't get a permit. We didn't do anything, but these cops just showed up to show their support and they realized that we needed the street. And so they blocked it off for us so that we could ride the one block, one minute parade. I think it actually took about two and a half minutes, but, um, but it was unbelievable. It was, it really was. It was, it far exceeded our expectations.
0: Has the atmosphere just felt different around the Twin Cities? I mean, baseball in Twin Cities right now is pretty good between the Twins and the Saints. Yeah. Has the atmosphere just felt different?
2: Yeah, look, I, I've been surprised with how many people were excited with our championship. Again, because it's known as this place that people go to have a good time and have fun and enjoy themselves and, you know, take part of our crazy antics. But they, they proved that they cared that that we won. Um, I, I do want to give a shout-out to the Minnesota Twins. They're actually honoring us tonight at Target Field uh, before their ballgame against. I believe they're playing the White Sox tonight, and uh, and George, our, our our manager, who actually played a season in the big leagues with the Minnesota Twins, uh, he is throwing out the first pitch. So, uh, you, you know, shout-out to the Twins and recognizing us. They didn't have to do that, but they are. So, so yeah, look, it, it's been incredible. It, it will. We'll, we'll ride this for as long as we can. I'm not sure how long it'll last, but uh, we'll ride it for as long as we can.
0: Sean Aronson, play-by-play man of the St. Paul Saints, the Saints winning the American Association title for the first time ever, their first title since being members of the Northern League 15 years ago. Sean, I appreciate the time as always. Congrats again. Best of luck going forward. We'll talk again sometime soon.
1: Sounds good, Tanner. Thank you very much.
0: All right, let's take a timeout. Play college football over under next on ESPN-UP.
1: Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app.
0: Welcome back to The Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Tanner Hoops with you. Glad you're along this Monday afternoon. Here's your Sports Center update. Angels outfielder Mike Trout will undergo season-ending foot surgery. The Angels have officially been eliminated from playoff contention with two weeks left to go. But I still think he's got the AL MVP on lockdown. Not a trout-standing way to end the season, but it's going to be trout-standing when he wins another AL MVP. Spain trounced Argentina 95-75 yesterday morning to win their second FIBA World Cup title. Ricky Rubio was named tournament MVP. And finally, Vice President Mike Pence claims that while visiting the racehorse American Pharaoh, the first horse to win the Triple Crown in 37 years, that the horse bit him. Vice President says the horse bit him. Trainer says otherwise horse could be a democrat that is your sports center update tanner hoops with you once again glad you're along for the sports pen i tell you what we play this every week over under we take a look at the top 25 games and the betting lines entering this weekend of play let me give them to you as utah comes in three and a half point favorites at usc who just dropped from the top 25 i tell you what i don't know if i like usc in this one but i'm not sure that i like utah As four-point favorites on the road. I mean, it's Utah. USC has been so streaky. They blew out Stanford, who I get just got blown out by Central Florida. But there's still no slouch. They still make you work for it. USC at home. They're starting to get the offense clicking, even with a backup quarterback. I like USC to at least get within the four points. I don't think it's going to be a blowout. In fact, I think it's going to be under the four-point spread. I'm going to take the under on that one. Utah still might win. But it may not be as decisively as people think. How about Boise State? Ten-point favorites. They take on Air Force this weekend. Boise State into the top 20 at number 20. I think I'm going to go with the under on that one, too. You know, Boise State's got a fairly decent team this year. But Air Force is tricky. Air Force is one of those teams that any given Saturday, they could be the team that trips you up. Those academy schools and the offenses they run, you hate to play them. You hate to prepare for them. Your linebackers have got to be almost perfect. I think this could be a high scoring game, and I think Air Force gets within the 10 point spread. I take the under on this one as well. How about Ohio State? 39 point favorites at home against Miami, Ohio. I take the over on it. Miami, Ohio just hasn't looked impressive against Power 5 teams. They got blown out by Iowa. Ohio State's significantly better than Iowa. Ohio State should be able to cover the 39-point spread and beat Miami-Ohio without much problem. How about Clemson? 43-point favorites. They're at home against Charlotte. Boy, they're really scheduling some doozies here early on. Charlotte coming to town to take on the defending national champions. 43-point favorites. Book it. Take the over on it. Clemson is going to cover and then some. Trevor Lawrence? Yeah, he'll have no problem with the Charlotte defense. How about UCF? They just blew Stanford out of the water. They go on the road to take on Pitt this weekend. The Knights are favored by 12. I'm going with the under on this one. I think UCF will win, but Pitt just gave Penn State a battle. I realize that Penn State is down this year, but Pitt is starting to trend in the right direction. I get they're not anywhere close to the days they were a few years ago with Aaron Donald, and that was their peak, and they were still 8-4 and four at best. Yeah, this could be a better game than people think. I tell you what, UCF is really starting to figure things out now. Dylan Gabriel, the quarterback over there, just won National Player of the Week, awarded by Walter Camp. They're starting to figure things out, but going on the road, taking on a Pitt team that might be figuring things out themselves? I don't know if that's going to be a 12-point victory. It will be a victory for Central Florida. I don't know if they're going to cover the 12-point spread. How about this one? Virginia, 29-point favorites at home against Old Dominion. Virginia was ranked 25th this weekend. They're up to 21st after an uninspiring seven-point victory over Florida State. How about this? This tells you where Virginia football is. Starting to get better, but still at the point where they have to rush the field, winning by seven against an unranked Florida State team. That Willie Taggart is just struggling and spinning his wheels trying to figure out how to make them go. That's the point that Virginia football has come to. You've rushed the field for beating an unranked team when you yourself just cracked the top 25, for the first time in how long. Nonetheless, they move up to number 21 this week. I tell you what, I'm taking the under on this one. Old Dominion saw what they did last year against Virginia Tech, and I realized Virginia Tech was not good last year, but that's really what derailed their season. For about half the year, Virginia Tech was a top 10 team. Old Dominion's no slouch. They can go into an opponent's house, and they can cause some havoc. I don't know if they're going to win against Virginia, but lose by 29 or more? I don't see that happening. If Virginia does, however, rush the field for beating Old Dominion, it might be time to cancel the Virginia football program. You know, and I think about this, and I think, man, I would love to storm the field. I wouldn't want to for a game like that, but wouldn't it be fun to storm the field? I've never done it. I've been in a lot of games where I've had the opportunity to do so. Well, if someone else took the lead, maybe I'd follow. I was at the only game in the history of the Hubert H. Humphrey Metrodome in Minneapolis, Minnesota. At least it was, been demolished about 10 years ago. I was at the only game in that venue's history where they had to postpone a baseball game, suspend a baseball game, and finish it the next day because they had to convert it from a baseball stadium to a football stadium. Because remember, the Twins, Vikings, and Govers all shared that stadium. There was a Twins game Saturday morning. It was early October. And they went to 15 innings, still tied, and they kicked us all out because they had to get it ready for Gopher Football, who had a home game there that night. We all should have stormed the field that day, should have stormed out a protest, but we didn't. I was at the Minneapolis Miracle, we could have stormed the field there, but we didn't. That's on my bucket list, is to storm the field someday at a sporting event. I want to know for my listeners, if you've ever stormed the field Share a story with us. Do my work for me. Give me some content to work out here on the radio. I will read submissions here in the next segment. Send me your field storming stories. Either send us a message on Facebook or tweet us at ESPNUP, at ESPNUP on Twitter. I want to hear some of your field storming stories. It does not count if you consider what Virginia did legit and worthy of storming the field. Not winning by seven against a really bad Florida State football program. Going back to over-under, here's one I know a lot of my listeners are going to care about. Number 13, Wisconsin, at home against number 11, Michigan. The Badgers favored by a field goal. I tell you what, I'm going with the Badgers in this one. And there are two reasons why. For one thing, they're at home. It's so tough to go into Camp Randall and come out with a win. For another thing, Jonathan Taylor, Michigan defense, it's not a good combination for the Wolverines. Jonathan Taylor, the best running back in college football this year, against the Michigan run defense, which is allowing three yards per carry. Their run defense is 61st in the country, and they played Mid Tennessee State and Army. Now, again, the Academy schools, they run that tricky offense. They really stretch you defensively. They test your run defense. But I'm sorry, if you aren't able to limit Army, then something around three yards per carry you are really going to struggle with Jonathan Taylor. But I have Wisconsin winning this one. I'm going to go with the three-point spread. Last second field goal, Badgers beat the Wolverines this weekend. How about Washington? Seven-point favorites at BYU. Now, BYU's tricky. Last couple of games, overtime victories for them. You have a really good Washington offense. Jacob Eason has come in, and he's done wonders with them. I like the seven-point spread, though. I think BYU will make it interesting toward the end. I think Washington by one score is going to have enough. They get the victory over the Cougs. I like the spread in this one. How about the Fighting Herms fresh off their controversial win against Sparty? They are seven-point favorites against Colorado this weekend. I'm going to go with the over on it. I think maybe 10 is where they should have set the line for this one. Arizona State? They're a lot more tricky than people realize. I get Colorado is the same way. You could say the same thing about them. I think the Fighting Herms are starting to get on the map a little bit. I think we've got to give them some credit. They just got in the top 25 this weekend, coming in at number 24. Don't underestimate Herm Edwards and his squad over there in Tempe. I've got them winning by just a little more than the spread at seven points against Colorado. By the way, that game is in Tempe. How about this one, Cal, who made their way into the top 25 this week. They are ranked 23rd, two-point favorites at Ole Miss. I think they're going to cover I've been impressed with what I've seen from Cal so far this year. That defense is for real, highlighted by Coin Of course, a friend of the show. Last Chance U-Star was on here a couple of weeks ago. I like Cal in this one. I think Cal is going to cover, not by much more, but I think they're going to win by more than two. I'd say somewhere three to five. That's about where I would put the line. I take the over on Cal this weekend at Ole Miss. How about Florida? 14-point favorites in Gainesville. They take on Tennessee I'm going with you over. By the way, you can hear that game here on ESPN-UP this weekend. We'll have that for you 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Coverage begins Saturday morning here on ESPN-UP. The Gators come in ranked ninth, and I haven't been so much overly impressed with them as I've been so disappointed in Tennessee. Their biggest win this year has come off the field. Tennessee has just been so disappointing they don't go into Gainesville and even come close to beating a top-ten team. Felipe Franks, I'm not overly impressed with him, but he's much better than Jarrett Guarantano or whatever his name is from Tennessee. Florida gets this win, and they cover the two-touchdown spread. Alabama 39-point favorites at home against Southern Mississippi. The fighting Brett Favre's. Yeah, I'm taking the over on it. I like Bama in this one by more than 39. They win in their home field. Did you see they're doing this thing where they can track students now to make sure they don't leave during the fourth quarter of games? Nick Saban was so unhappy they had to kick off at 11 a.m. Central a couple of weeks ago, now they're actually tracking students to make sure nobody leaves in the fourth quarter of a game if it's a blowout because they want somebody there all throughout the game. Nick Saban usually has a way of channeling his frustration into demolishing an opponent by just unhumanly scores. Things that we can't fathom, I think that's what's going to happen this weekend against Southern Miss. Alabama, I'm taking the over as 39-point favorites against Southern Miss. LSU 21-point favorites at Vanderbilt. i take the over. I'm so impressed with Joe Burrows. I thought LSU would be a huge disappointment this year. Maybe they still will be. Still got to play Alabama. That could be a rude awakening, but Joe Burrows looks like a legit Heisman candidate, and any he's on the field playing the way he has been, LSU's going to give themselves a chance. I like where the line is, 21-point favorites on the road at Vandy. I think I'm going to stick with them there. How about Texas A&M? Four-point favorites at home against Auburn. I'll take the over. I think it's going to be a one-score game. If this game was at Auburn, then I would probably say the line is good where it is. But since it's at A&M, I think they're a better team than Auburn just by a little bit anyway. I think I'm going to go with A&M by seven. One score. Seven points rather than four. Texas at home, four-point favorites against Oklahoma State, taking the over on that. Texas ranked 12th in the country. Oklahoma State so up and down, they can be tricky, but Texas is just flat-out better. Sam Ellinger is going to have a good day. I think Texas wins this one by two scores on their home field at Darryl K. Royal Stadium. You've got Oregon, 10-point favorites when they go on the road and take on Stanford. I like the line where it is right there. It's going to be a tough one going into Stanford. I know Stanford is coming off back-to-back blowouts against USC and UCF. But Justin Herbert deciding to come back to Oregon for his senior year has cost him major draft stock. He just doesn't look the same. Oregon's not been overwhelmingly impressive. They should win this game. They're ranked 16th in the country against a team that's reeling right now, yet Stanford is always a tough team to go on the road and beat. So I'm into with Oregon where the line is set. Oregon by 10. This is a toughie for me. Georgia at home 13-point favorites against Notre Dame. I tell you what, I want to believe the Irish have a shot in this one. I do. I'm way too emotionally invested in this one to be able to bet on it in real life. But if I were, I'm taking the over on Georgia. I think Georgia wins this one by more than two scores. I'd like to think Notre Dame's competitive. I'd like to think they're on a similar tier as Georgia, where they can be a true top 10 team in the country. They were a couple years ago when they played Georgia to one point. I think two years ago that game was. But Georgia's taken a step forward since then. I don't know that Notre Dame truly has. And I want to believe Notre Dame can hang around in that game. But through their first couple of weeks, they haven't shown me any reason to think that they are going to. Right now, I'm just hopeful. I'm not optimistic. Notre Dame is going to have to establish a consistent ground game, put together long drives, because the big plays that were there the first couple of weeks of the year against Louisville, against New Mexico, aren't going to be there against Georgia. So in my heart, I want to say under with my head, I take the over on Georgia beating Notre Dame by two scores. And then finally, we've got Washington State at home, plus 18 against UCLA. You booked that one. Oklahoma, they just blew the fighting Chip Kelly's out of the water this weekend. You knew they would. Washington State with that offense, yeah, it's going to be no contest this weekend. Washington State all over UCLA in Pullman this weekend. That is a look at this weekend's top 25 lines playing over under as we do every Monday during the college football season. I tell you what, let's take a timeout when we come back. I'm going to check my inbox. I want to get a few field-storming stories. Plus, I did another fan inbox answering some of your questions next on ESPN-UP.
1: Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app.
0: Tanner Hoops with you. Glad that you're along with us as we wind down on this Monday afternoon. I tell you what, I've got my trade proposal. I'm forewarning you, it's going to sound out there. But I'm not just saying that somebody should do it or even think about doing it. I'm saying whether it's right or wrong, this might happen. This could very well happen based on what we know from the results of yesterday and the news regarding a certain quarterback coming out today. We're going to get to that here before we sign off and we hit the 5 o'clock hour. Plus, I did a fan inbox, and I want to get to that a little bit. And I tell you what, this one... Actually, this wasn't part of my inbox, but it was there. I didn't ask for it, but I got it. And I I want to address an email that I got last week. I got an email sent by one of my listeners regarding last week's show And it had to do with a segment involving Sammy Watkins, wide receiver of the Kansas City Chiefs. You might have heard that. If you missed it on Monday, there's a promo going out uh, right now going around talking about how Sammy Watkins was clocked running 21 miles an hour into the end zone on one of his touchdown catches. It's pretty fast. It's pretty fast. And and you know what? It's relevant because yesterday, Cordero, Cordero Patterson of the Oakland Raiders was clocked at going 22 miles an hour into the end zone. Twenty-two point two three to be exact. So Cordell Patterson, twenty-two point two miles per hour on one carry yesterday. That is the fastest that an NFL player has been recorded in two years. Sammy Watkins, twenty-one point three. Still pretty fast. Cordell Patterson just gets him by a little bit. So this email that I get from one of the listeners and I and I appreciate it. I'm glad that we have people who care about that enough and want to engage. And I I appreciate that. This email said, you know, and I'm paraphrasing, I don't have it in front of me, that Sammy Watkins run is rather pedestrian when you consider other notables in the NFL and throughout its history, when you consider somebody like Usain Bolt running twenty seven mile an hour in the Olympics. I tell you what, I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm not saying that Usain Bolt makes Sammy Watkins look pedestrian. Although, C. St. Bolt makes anybody look pedestrian. What I am saying is, just because others may have done something more impressive, shouldn't take away from the remarkability of what Sammy Watkins did or what Cordell Patterson did yesterday. Justin Verlander just threw his third career no-hitter a couple of weeks ago. Lots of guys have done that. Some have even thrown perfect games. They've even exceeded what Verlander did as a no-hitter. They didn't just allow a hit. They didn't allow a base runner. Does that make what Verlander did any less remarkable, any less noteworthy? That's what I'm getting at. I didn't say anything about Sammy Watkins doing something no NFL player has ever done before, but he still did something that's remarkable. I do appreciate the email, though. I appreciate any of my listeners who are willing to get in touch and talk sports with me. I want to get into this before I take any more questions, do any more of our inbox. A trade proposal that's way out there, but you wonder if it realistically could happen. You heard the news earlier today. This morning, Ben Roethlisberger announced that he is undergoing season-ending elbow surgery, very similar to what Tommy John is to baseball players. So that means it is the pride of Oklahoma State University, Mason Rudolph, to quarterback the Pittsburgh Steelers, a team that I thought would win their division this year. Now I'm starting to think it's the Baltimore Ravens, but here's what I'm thinking. You have two possibilities if you're Pittsburgh. You have two potential trade possibilities here because I don't think you want Mason Rudolph. I don't think you're going to win with Mason Rudolph, and I don't think anybody within Pittsburgh believes that they are going to either. Option A is what I believe head coach Mike Tomlin wants. And that would be putting a package together and trading with Miami for Josh Rosen. They have a lot of guys in Miami who want to get out of there. Josh Rosen? Maybe he could be a guy that you can put together a good enough package for. Miami feels like this tanking has been worth it. The tanking has been worth it to do a trade like this. Maybe, if you're Pittsburgh, you're going to have to sell quite a bit But it gives you a better chance of winning with Josh Rosen and winning for the future rather than with Mason Rudolph. And I say Mike Tomlin would be the one who's in favor of this. I don't know that the ownership would be. I know Mike Tomlin is because Mike Tomlin, his seat's pretty hot. His seat is getting warm. And Mike Tomlin needs to win now. He doesn't just want to win now. He needs to win now. He can't afford to miss the playoffs again. And right now his team is sitting 0-2 with Mason Rudolph as their starting quarterback. James Conner got hurt yesterday too. I don't think Pittsburgh is going to the playoffs with Mason Rudolph as a quarterback, and I don't think Mike Tomlin's coming back next year if Pittsburgh misses the playoffs for a second straight year. So you put a good enough package together, you have an obvious rebuild going on in Miami, give them a head start, and get a quarterback who can not only save your job this year, but he can help you in the long term. That's what I believe Mike Tomlin would like out of this Ben Roethlisberger ordeal. Here is the option that might seem a little out there. Here's the option that I believe tomlin wouldn't like the ownership might the rooney family that owns the pittsburgh steelers they have close ties with the mara family who owns the new york giants in fact rooney mara the actress her uncle just happens to be art rooney president of the pittsburgh steelers and her other uncle her paternal uncle is john mara ceo of the new york giants this is a family that's intertwined through marriage they are connected with each other and they're not above doing business together. Pittsburgh needs a quarterback. New York's got one they're trying to unload. They aren't looking for any reason to start Daniel Jones. Could we see Eli Manning in a Pittsburgh Steelers uniform? Yeah, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. Why would they want him? Well, think about it. Your other options: Mason Rudolph. Does Eli Manning give you a better chance to win than Mason Rudolph? I think he does. I think a lot of people in Pittsburgh probably think he does. But you saw what's happening in New York right now. Yesterday after the game, head coach Pat Shermer said, we are not considering switching quarterbacks. Today he said, we're going to have a discussion regarding who's our quarterback going forward. Because right now, there is no reason for New York to keep putting Eli Manning out there. Daniel Jones is ready, and he hasn't given us reason to doubt that he wouldn't be ready for this kind of a moment. So if New York is looking to unload a veteran to go to Pittsburgh, Sign on a vet minimum. I mean, if anything, he doesn't even have to start over Mason Rudolph right away. But if anything, you get a quarterback battle, it's never a bad thing. Quarterback battles are never a bad thing. You put Eli in there, if anything, just be a mentor to Mason Rudolph. That's why I think this could happen. The families, what they know about each other, New York is trying to unload a quarterback, we presume. They're not going to go public with it, but if they get an offer, why wouldn't the Giants try and unload Eli Manning? Daniel Jones is their guy of the future. Again, I think the Rooney family, the ownership, would be more excited about that. I think Mike Tomlin would be more excited with trading with Miami and getting Josh Rosen because he is the guy of the future. That's what I'm interested to see. I'm wondering if Eli Manning's days are truly numbered in New York because they respect him too much. They aren't going to sit him. They aren't going to play Daniel Jones ahead of him. I think they're looking to unload Eli Manning so they can let him go out with dignity, with grace, go help another team while they usher in the new generation, Daniel Jones, the Daniel Jones era. I don't know if that means that they're going to load him to Pittsburgh, but I wouldn't put it past him. I wouldn't doubt it. As far-fetched as it sounds, Eli Manning could very well be a Pittsburgh Steeler by season's end. I tell you what, spent a little bit too much time on uh, those first couple of segments here, what have you. I'm going to get to more of the inbox tomorrow because we're running out of time here. Oh, there was one I wanted to get to in here. Let me find that. Here we go. Here's a good one. Which has a more likely chance to happen? I got this question last night. 16-0 Patriots or 0-16 Dolphins? Guys, I'm going with 0-16 Dolphins. Not that the Patriots couldn't get to 16-0. In fact, this lineup, if you look at it, pretty similar at the skill position to what they had in 7 when they went 16-0 through the regular season. Tom Brady, quarterback on both teams. Lawrence Maroney. Now you have Sony Michelle at the running back position. That wide receiver core, you got Antonio Brown, you got Julian Edelman, and you have Josh Gordon. Back then, it was Dante Stallworth, it was Wes Welker. Oh man, New England, it's scary to see the similarities between these guys. So New England, yeah, I think they could go 16-0, but I look at how bad this Dolphins team is. Guys are asking to be traded, it's a total tank job. Who was the running back yesterday? It wasn't Kenyon Drake, I don't know the name off the top of my head, but Fitzpatrick threw a little bubble screen to him, and he ducked. He ducked the pass. He didn't even attempt to catch it. He just ducked out of the way. The Dolphins are the same team that yesterday tried to avoid the shutout by calling timeout and promptly threw an interception. That's how incompetent this Dolphins team is, as it is right now. So could the Patriots be 16-0? Yeah. Yeah, I think they could. I still think going 16 Dolphins is more likely, just because of how bad they are rather than how good New England is. With that, we're out of time. Again, I apologize I didn't get to as many questions as I wanted to today. We'll hit that tomorrow. i got a lot of baseball to talk with you tomorrow. Plus, we'll recap Monday Night Football and put a bow on week two of the NFL season. All that and more coming up on tomorrow's Sports Pan. It's my hope you join me. Signing off from espn UPWZAM WZAM in downtown Marquette, Michigan. I'm Tanner Hoops. Have a great Monday.